please turn with me to Exodus 14, 11 through 31. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you'll see the deliverance of the Lord that he will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to one side and the light to the other. So neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with the strong east winds and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire in a cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing towards it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord had displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Ask God to help us. Father, um, you tell us that your word is, uh, the the Bible is breathed out by you in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and that it's useful and profitable for teaching and correcting and uh, convicting us and challenging us um, and it also teaches us and encourages us and so I pray that you would use this passage and use your word to do all of those things in our hearts uh, tonight Uh, we come from lots of different places and we need a word from the outside and so over this next few minutes would you take these words and 
through your spirit, apply them to our hearts so that we can live differently. Uh, Help us to focus. Help us to be attentive. Uh, Thank you for Jesus, and may we, our eyes, be focused on him uh, as we leave here tonight. And if you do these things, uh, we will be thankful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're not already there, turn with me uh, to Exodus 14, or you can look on your announcement sheets, uh, your announcement sheet in front of you. But we're going to be looking at a rather familiar passage, uh, maybe to some of you. It's the story of the Red Sea. Uh, as you're turning there, I heard a story recently about a young boy who had just gotten his driver's permit, and he was wanting to talk to his father about the use of the family car. And so he went to his father, and his father pulled him into his study or his office and says, you know, son, I'll make a deal with you. You know, if you uh, bring your grades up a little, uh, if you read your Bible every now and then, uh, and if you cut your hair, then we'll talk about it. And his son says, okay, and a month or so went by, Uh, And the young boy wanted to revisit that conversation with his father. He wanted to talk about the use of the family car. And so again, he goes to his father and his father pulls him into a study. And the father says, you know what, son, I'm really proud of you. Uh, You know, you've brought your grades up. You've done that. Uh, And I've noticed around the house that you're actually, you know, reading the Bible uh, quite often. Uh, And he says, but you still haven't cut your hair. And the boy said, yeah, that's what I wanted to talk to you about. You know, as you mentioned, I have been reading the Bible. uh, And I want to point out that Samson, he had long hair. Moses had long hair. Noah had long hair. And dad, even Jesus, had long hair. And his father replied, yes. And everywhere they went, they walked. (laughs) Thanks for giving me that laugh. (laughs) That's a funny story, but, but it is a clear picture, a very clear picture of what we often do with the Bible. People often come to the Bible... And we have this tendency to come to the Bible and to look for all the things that we want it to say. And we pull those things out of context and we put them in the mirror of our dorm and we think about those promises as we walk out our door. And you know what? That's okay. But what if the Bible is more than just a collection of random promises every now and then that really give us hope to get through another day? What if the Bible is instead a story that is actually meant to be read in context and that actually is a part of a broader story and a broader work that God is doing in the world? Tonight, here's what I want to do. I want us to take this story that has often been misapplied over the years, um, and I want us to put this story in the context of the bigger story of Scripture, to put it in the context 
of the entire Bible. And the reason why I say that is because if you look through the Bible, uh, and if you've ever read the New Testament, this is a story, the crossing of the Red Sea, that comes up over and over and over again. It's actually the defining moment of the Israelites' history. And what we learn when we look at all of the Bible is that this event that we're going to look at tonight is actually a paradigm of salvation. It's actually a picture of how God saves his people. A picture of how he saves me and you today. We've been studying this semester the story of salvation through the book of Exodus. And if you've been coming, you've heard me say this a lot. What does Exodus do? Well, it takes words like rebellion and sin. And last week we saw words like judgment. And it puts them in story form and brings them to life so, those, so that those words might become real to our heart. Well, we see it again. And this week we see the story of salvation through the passage of the Red Sea is put in a story form so that it might come to life so that we might understand what that word means on a deeper level. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. This is the question. How does the crossing of the Red Sea help us to understand the word salvation? How does the crossing of the Red Sea help us to understand the word salvation? We're going to see three things that help us tonight to really get at a deeper meaning of that word and bring it to life for us. We're going to see our problem. If you have an outline, it's there on your announcement sheet. Our deliverance. And lastly, our rescuer. I'm going to look at those three. Let's look at number one. And let's see what this passage says about our problem. If you were here in the last couple of weeks, you know that it's been pretty tough sledding. Uh, we've been through the section of Exodus called the plagues. And we looked at that, and last week we looked specifically at the 10th plague, which was the story of the Passover. Uh, and I don't have time to rehash all of that, but it's on the website, on our podcast, if you weren't here. But basically, God in that story comes down and goes into every Egyptian house and kills the firstborn. And after that event, as the Egyptians are wailing in the street, Pharaoh finally says, it's enough. I'm done. God, you can have the Israelites. Get them out of my sight. But then look at verse 5. We didn't read it because of time's sake, but if you have your Bible, look up at verse 5 in chapter 14. The old master Pharaoh, he gets delusional again. And he says, what did I do? I just let go my entire labor force. They're gone. I want them back. And Pharaoh doesn't send just a few soldiers or, you know, 10 or 15 or so chariots. He sends 600 chariots in order to track down the Israelites. And friends, you don't send 600 chariots unless you've got one thing in mind, and that is to destroy every single thing in your path. So that's what Pharaoh's wanting to do. 
But Pharaoh's not the only one that's delusional. The Israelites have become delusional. Look at verses 11 and 12. Look at how they respond to Moses. They know that Pharaoh's coming after them, and they say, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to the wilderness to die? Think about how they've been treated, and think about that statement. It goes on, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? We told you to leave us alone and to let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to, to die there than to die out here in the wilderness. Friends, that's crazy. Think about what they're saying. And you know what it is? Honestly, that is the language of addiction, if you think about it. Think about what they're saying and what's missing from the equation. What's missing from the equation is God. It's not anywhere in their vocabulary. Everyone in this passage is delusional but Moses. Because God and Moses had met face to face and everyone else but Moses is completely enslaved But notice that they're not enslaved. The Israelites are not enslaved to the Egyptians. But instead, they are enslaved to their own fear and to their own circumstances. Did you see that? By the modern definition of freedom, the Israelites are free. But are they really free? And the answer is a resounding no. They're enslaved. They're in bondage. They're enslaved to the idols of their heart. And what I want to suggest is that this story is a vivid picture of our problem. Don't miss this. You can be objectively free from sin and from the bondage and from slavery of sin. In other words, you can objectively be a Christian and no longer be a slave to sin, but subjectively still be in service to idols in your heart. And some of you just breathed a deep sigh of relief. And I know that sounds strange, but some of you are thinking that's the best news I've heard because my heart, it finally makes sense to me and I finally understand what's going on inside of me. Here's what I'm saying. You can be a Christian and objectively be free from condemnation, which is what happens when you become a Christian. Be free from guilt and free from shame, but in your heart you forget that And you run after and serve false saviors instead of serving God and finding life in him. Another way to say it is you can be a Christian and the idols in your heart are constantly trying to reclaim you. And take over again in your heart. Remember an idol. If you've come around RUF, we talk about this a lot. Because it's a main theme that runs through the Bible. An idol is anything that you're looking to to find life, significance, meaning, worth, love outside of Jesus. 
Another way to say it is an idol is anything in your life that when it's threatened or taken away or removed, not only do you just get sad for a couple of days, but you completely come apart on the inside. So, for example, when you lose that person in, that, in your relationship, or you lose your body type, or you lose your social status, or your grades start to go in a negative rex- direction, then you get more than just simply sad, you completely melt down. And whatever causes you to completely melt down and to feel like you're coming apart on the inside, that is your old masters coming back and demanding service. Those are your old masters coming back and saying, serve me or die. You need me. You can't live without me. And so then the question becomes is, what does that look like when it's actually played out, played out in the here and now? Well, let's use a relationship, a dating relationship, as an example or as an illustration. And you've all probably experienced this. If you haven't seen this played out, uh, you've probably been in a relationship like this at some time. But it's when you're dating someone and everyone else around you knows that it's a bad idea and that it's a complete train wreck and that it's actually a very unhealthy relationship. Why? Well, because you're overly controlling and overly possessive in the relationship. You're overly physical in the relationship. And when he so much as talks to another girl, you completely fly off the handle and lose it. Therefore, the people all around you can't stand you as a couple. And they actually resent you in their hearts, whether they tell you that or not. That is definition number one of a relationship idolatry. And you know, here's the thing, deep in your heart, you know it's a terrible relationship. You know it's an unhealthy relationship, but you're so scared of being alone that you don't do anything about it. Because it would actually feel like death if you were to break up. And so let's say a month or so goes by and your friends keep talking to you and uh, you start to think about the relationship from a more objective point of view and you start to realize that it is unhealthy and that you have been finding your significance in the relationship or in this guy instead of in Jesus. And so you actually break up. Because you see the idolatry of the relationship. And you're actually embarrassed because you look at it and you realize how hung up you were in the relationship. And so you vow at that moment never to get involved in a relationship like that again. And so a few months go by and things are going great and you're encouraged. But then all of a sudden, the loneliness sets in again. And it actually starts to feel like death because you're so lonely because the phone has stopped ringing and no one's asking you out. And so you start trying to put yourself in positions to get noticed so that maybe someone will ask you out and that time finally comes and you go from zero to 90 in a matter of a week and you're right back in the terrible relationship that you said that you would never be in again. Why? 
it's because your owed masters, that relationship idol has come calling. And it has come demanding service, saying, serve me or you will die. And it's in that moment that you realize, I'm a Christian. And yes, I'm freed from the penalty and the power of sin. But subjectively, the battle for my heart is not over. And so the question then is, okay, so then how do we break out of that subjective bondage to our idols? How does that begin to happen? And what's interesting is we see it very subtly. And you can look back in the previous chapters, but in the first couple of verses of chapter 8 and 9, Moses goes on behalf of God and he says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me. Let my, he doesn't just say let them go, so that they might worship me. Why does he say that? Here it is. Because it's only when God is at the center of your life. You see, everyone's going to worship something. Everyone's a worshiper. It's not a matter of some people are worshipers and others are not. Everyone worships something. And the Bible says that the only way life works is when God's at the center. And so that is where true freedom is found. Life only works and you're only truly free is if God is at the center of your life. Because it's only when God is at the center of your life that you have finally found something that's actually going to fill you up rather than demand payment from you. Only when God is at the center will you have something that when you fail him will actually forgive you and not crush you and destroy you. It's only when God is at the center that you are filled up instead of being left feeling like an addict looking for one more hit of compliments and beauty and smiles and love and success. That's the first point. This passage shows us something and that salvation shows us something about our problem. And we see that clearly in this passage. And secondly, something about our deliverance. Notice that the Israelites are under a death sentence. They're under a death sentence because here come 600 chariots wanting to destroy them. And all of a sudden, the water goes up on each side of the Red Sea... And they walk through on dry land and immediately they go from death sentence to life. Did you ever think about that? Immediately. They're going to die. But immediately they pass from death to life. In other words, they go from condemnation on one side to a new status. Because never again will they have the same relationship with the Egyptians after this moment. It changes forever. But notice who's doing this is. Look at verse 13. I love this verse. Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the Lord of salvation, which he has worked for you. You'll never see the Egyptians again. The Lord will fight for you. I love this part. All you need to do is shut up. (laughs) That's basically what he says. 
All you need to do is be quiet, be silent. In other words, what Moses is saying is that from beginning to end, it is the Lord's doing. He is the one that's done this, not you. But doesn't that make perfect sense when you think about the story? I can assure you that the Egyptians on this day in this event didn't get to the other side and start chest bumping and fist bumping and high-fiving saying, yes, we did this. We finally delivered ourselves from slavery. No. They knew that Their new status was a hundred percent God's doing and God's work on their behalf. Remember, we've been looking at the story of salvation this semester. And friends, there is no clearer picture of what it means to become a Christian than this passage. We see it all throughout the Bible. But this is exactly what happens. John chapter 5 is one example. Jesus says, when you have faith in me, you immediately pass from death, spiritually speaking, to life. How does that happen? Well, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that you are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not by works should any man boast. That's at the heart of of what it means to be a Christian. That you have been given a new status, not because of your own doing, but because of something God has graciously given you as a gift. And it reminds me of a story, and for the freshmen in the room that have been at freshman Bible study, forgive me, you've heard this, uh, but it's an incredible picture, an illustration of this idea of God giving us a new status. There is a pastor, Mark Driscoll, out on the West Coast, and he tells a story when he was doing some premarital counseling uh, with a couple in his church. Two years into the marriage, the couple comes, or the wife comes into his office and sits down, and she is completely undone. She's weeping before him, and he says, what's going on? What's wrong with you? And he says, well, when we were engaged... I actually slept with another man, and I've never told my husband. And Mark Driscoll looks at her and says, well, you must. You've got to tell him. She says, I don't think I can. Well, a couple of weeks went by, and she finally got the courage uh, to have this conversation with her husband. And so she didn't know what else to do, and so she fixed fixes a dinner, uh, kind of a nicer dinner, and, and he comes home, and he sits down, and they're having this nice candlelight dinner, and she says, listen, I've got something uh, that I'm really ashamed of. When we were engaged, I actually slept with another man, and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And he immediately, uh, the, the husband pushes away from the table and storms out of the house. And she is a complete basket case, as you can imagine, thinking that her marriage is over of only two years. Thinking that it's, it's over. An hour later, he shows up with a big box. And he pulls her into the bedroom. And he takes off her clothes. 
And out of this box, he pulls out a brand new, perfect, spotless, white robe. And he puts it on his wife. And he says, every time you come into this bedroom, I want this to remind you that you're pure. That you're holy. That you're clean. That you are covered in righteous robes. And friends, that's it. That is a picture of what Jesus does for us. Our hearts, everything I said in the first point, we're always running after other lovers and other idols, and it's, as the hymn says, it's prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are full of evil and unrighteousness and wickedness and sin and shame and guilt. And what God does, what Jesus does is he comes to us and he says, let me take off those robes of shame and let me give you a new status. Let me put on you this perfect robe of righteousness, of holiness. And he looks at us and he says, you're clean. You're holy. You're righteous. And if you are a Christian tonight in this room, that is who you are. That is your identity. That is your new status. And we should just pack it up and go home. Because that's incredible. But that's the gospel and that's Christianity. And here's the thing. You didn't do a thing to deserve it. And you didn't have a thing to do with your new status. It is God's work, just like we see in this story, from beginning to end. And friends, there's not another religion like it in the world. You realize that? Every other religion in the world, it says, be good enough. Follow the pillars of faith. Work out your own salvation. Progress. Try to be better. Every other religion in the world says the thing that keeps you out is failure. But Christianity comes and says the only thing that keeps you out is your inability to admit failure. Isn't that amazing? And some of you might be saying tonight, well, Jason, that sure sounds great. And I think I, be- I want to believe that. I do believe that by faith. But you don't understand me. I struggle. I doubt. And here's what I want you to hear from me. Join the club. Me too. And go back to the story. And think about this logically with me. And see if this makes sense. On that day of the Red Sea event... Most certainly, there were people walking through there that were strong in their faith. They were strutting their stuff, their chest out, saying, yes, this is my God. Look at these walls here of of water. And they're just probably taking their time, skipping through the, the Red Sea. That probably happened, maybe. 
But they were very strong in their faith. But also there were certainly people running for their lives saying, please help me, I'm going to die, this water's going to fall on me. What's my point? Every single one of them were saved. Every single one of them went from death to life. All of them, the people that had strong faith and that were strutting through there saying, yes, this is my God, and the people that were saying, I'm not so sure. They were all saved. And it goes back to what I said last week, and here's a vivid picture of what I said last week, and here it is. Because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. If it were about the quality of our faith, we wouldn't have a prayer. It's not the quality of our faith that saves us. It is the object of our faith, Jesus, that saves us. Third point, our rescuer. And so how can the Israelites cross over from death to life? How did they go through and the waters of judgment fall on the Egyptians and not them? Simply put, they had a mediator. They had a representative. Look at verse 15. You got to look closely because it's easy to miss. But notice God comes and he rebukes Moses and says, Moses, why are you complaining? Why are you crying out to me? What's interesting about that? Anybody pick up on it? Moses is the only one not complaining. (laughs) And yet God goes to him and rebukes him. Why? Because Moses was their mediator. Moses was their representative. And here's what's interesting. Moses shows up again in the New Testament in Luke chapter 9. And you can turn there or you can look it up later. But he shows up when Jesus goes to the Mount of Transfiguration with three disciples and he reveals his glory to them. And when he reveals his glory to them, you know who's beside Jesus? Elijah and Moses. And the passage says that Jesus was talking to them about his departure. But here's what's interesting. You know the Greek word for departure there? That's right. Exodus. Do you see it? Moses was the mediator back in the Old Testament for God's people and he was a mediator that delivered them out of slavery but it was only a glimpse only a shadow of the greater Moses of a better Moses only a shadow of a better Exodus the real and the true Exodus the one that's brought about by Jesus Christ because Jesus came And he brought his people out of the slavery of sin and death once and for all. And you know how he did it? Well, he went to a cross and he was plunged by his father underneath the waters of judgment. The waters of judgment that should have fallen on the Israelites... And the waters of judgment that should fall on you and I for our sin, they fell on him. 
Because Jesus is our mediator. And Jesus is our representative. And here's my question. If the Exodus event and the story of the Red Sea was the defining moment in the life of an Israelite, the question is, is what Jesus has done for you, is that the defining moment in your life? Let's pray. Father, um, our prayer is simple, that we are grateful for your amazing grace. We are grateful that you took our place so that the waters of judgment did not fall on us, but you took them on yourself so that we might pass from death to life. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you or is not a Christian, I pray that you'd give them faith to believe, that you would open up their hearts and make it clear, give them eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.